everyone. Welcome to another episode of Debatable with your hosts, Nina and Kyle. I'm Kyle. I'm Nina. And this episode is part of our debate analysis series, a series of episodes dedicated to explaining the motions of Debatable Open 2022. The goal of this series is to give debaters a better understanding of the different topics they've encountered if they competed in the tournament and give those that weren't able to join us a chance to learn from the motions as well. Today, we are joined by Vicky, who gave us our motions for the education theme of the tournament. So thank you for being here and hello. Hi. Hello. Thanks for having me. So I guess the first thing that we always ask our um, motion contributors is, what is it about education motion specifically that you like? Because we found that a person's favorite like theme um, really tells a person a lot about like that that other person, right? So what is it about education motions that you like? And how does it, you know, give us a glimpse into who you are as a person, Char? <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay well I guess I, I do have a little bit of a bias because I myself like like to think of myself as an educator like since I teach debate and public speaking and I feel like so much of I guess like who we are as people and like what we stand for cheesy as it sounds like is really defined by you know how we learn and who taught us like I think any individual you ask can always name like one teacher or one educator that had an impact on them. And I guess that goes to show just, you know, how far reaching the impact of education is. Um, And particularly for motions, I like that education motions have so much room for both principled and pragmatic arguments. So it's not always just about like the content of the curriculum or the style of teaching. Usually it's a question of how do we balance that with methods that are actually replicable and that can be applied at scale. Um, And yeah, I guess, again, a little bit of the cheesy part is really that, you know, education has so much to do with moral formation, imparting vital skills and all of that. And the challenge with these kinds of motions is to constantly ask, how is my case, you know, upholding those kinds of goals and achieving them? So I think what was interesting about what you said is that there's a there's a wide variety of things that involves education. And mm-hmm. when you debate about it, there's a lot of things that you can uncover. So I kind of want to ask, based on your experience as a debater, as a judge, as an educator, what do people usually get wrong about education motions? And what advice would you give people, especially if they were to focus on motions like this during tournaments? Um, I guess what people usually get wrong is they kind of either focus mainly only inside the classroom or mainly outside the classroom. So sometimes people like to, you know, I guess, blow up really the impact of education and only talk on a grand scale, talk about society level kind of impacts. And while I think that's true, a lot of education motions deal with just what happens with like students among each other or a teacher with a student. I like it when a team can really explain what happens, not just on the grand scale, but even on these tiny micro interactions, because I think that's really what defines like an education. It's not just like who you are after school. It's also just the small things you remember from your high school or elementary. So it's very interesting that um, the approach should be not just what happens inside the school, but also outside the school and some balance Um, of those two as well as what happens to the students themselves which leads us perfectly nicely to the first motion which is I feel like a really good example of 
a motion that requires a lot of these layers. Because the first motion is, this house believes that schools should teach history as a product of social and institutional factors rather than the product of prominent individual figures. So how would you characterize the way that history is being taught today? Like, what do educational systems look like when teaching history um, as opposed to what you want it to be in the world that government wants? Um, usually history classes, the vast majority would tackle kind of key figures and then they treat them as like the catalysts for certain events. So they give a lot of weight to what individuals do and then the cause and effect of those actions. So it tends to be like a simplistic kind of isolated discussion. So maybe some examples would be like, you know, Magellan and the Age of Exploration or, you know, Cory Aquino and the Edza Revolution, that kind of thing. Um, And I guess like traditional teaching methods kind of characterize figures as like, you know, generally good or evil. Um, But yeah, on the government side, you'd probably frame it a bit more strategically to say that traditional teaching methods, like if I was Gov, I would say that they tend to characterize figures as good or evil. So it tends to be a bit simplistic. And um, yeah, it, it it doesn't kind of dive into the complexities of like the social factors that go into any particular historical event. So given that's the status quo, what does the motion entail for government? So what would the education system be like if schools were Mm -hmm. to teach history as a product of social and institutional factors? So how would you basically frame Mm -hmm. it? How would you run this? If it's a policy, um, basically as government, how would you introduce this? Mm -hmm. So I guess first to define social and institutional factors, like it could be things like economic forces and trends, could be things like social norms and pressures. Maybe it's things like broader historical patterns. So maybe instead of, let's say, discussing like an individual authoritarian populist, you would talk more about like populism as a whole. When do we see populism being enacted throughout history and not just like you know, the specificities of one figure's life. (laughs) Um, And it can also look like even discussing like the incentives of these different actors throughout history, right, that are kind of consistent. So the way that the ruling class acts, the way that the working class tend to act and how they organize their priorities, how do colonizers act compared to those who are colonized, etc. So I guess that's how you would really look at history as a confluence of all these factors and not just something driven by, you know, um, notable individuals. Yeah, so in general, it would be like, we can't look at it as single people, single-handedly changing the course of history or or something like that, right? Um, So Mm -hmm. instead of focusing on what a certain person did, we would take a look at, okay, what were the factors like poverty and stuff that drove Mm -hmm. certain people to what they did during this time. So given that, how would you defend that on government? What arguments would you expect or would you recommend for debaters to have on government side? Um, Yeah, so just to tie in right to like the kind of framing government would have, like I guess like the key framing of education here is kind of asking like, instead of asking, was this a good person? Was this a bad person? Uh, We're kind of just asking, like, what are the different factors that actually brought out the worst in humanity? What are the factors that brought out the best in humanity or impacted humanity positively, right? And then questioning, like, 
are these factors, things that we can change, etc. So if I were to argue on government, um, I guess my first argument would really be um, why this provides like a more holistic reading of history. Um, so just on the like academic level, um, like, you know, as they say, history belongs to the victors. So the first level of this would just be discussing like, it's kind of arbitrary how we decide who's notable and who isn't. Um, obviously, mostly men are discussed in the history books, mostly people from privileged backgrounds and all of these things. And a focus on individuals will kind of always, um, you know, give primacy to like men, people who are historically in power. And of course, that's kind of exclusionary. Um, so that's just like one layer. Another thing is, I guess I would talk about how um, creating history is really a collective endeavor. Nobody really acts alone. There are so many different things to consider um, in terms of cause and effect. So teaching this, using this method gives us like real perspective as to how and why certain events happen. So for example, status quo would focus on, oh, this was Cori Aquino's role in inspiring the EDSA revolution and memorizing facts about her and maybe some quotes she said. But maybe this holistic approach would ask, what were the different you know, socioeconomic forces that came together to push Filipinos to rally in the streets? What was the tipping point? Um, how did all of these people overcome their differences to fight for a similar cause, right? So it kind of points out like it's so much more complex and multi-layered than a discussion just about Cory Aquino would probably give you. Um, and yeah, I guess another thing, another example here would be like um, a student learning the traditional way could tell you what specific figure endorsed an oppressive policy but might have a harder time explaining why that policy garnered popular appeal in the first place. So kind of the bottom line here is that we want to teach people critical thinking. We don't just want to teach them to memorize facts and figures, um, but we want them to identify patterns. We want them to see that, hey, this happened in the past. This could happen again. Um, and this, this is the recipe for an event like that to happen, right? Like if we look at um, the rise of populists, for example, like Donald Trump, if you had learned about populism as a concept and how it's used to influence the masses, it would, you see Donald Trump talking on TV, you'd be like, this is why people like him. It's because he employs these tactics. But if you learn just highly specific biographical info about other historical egomaniacs, it, you might not have that same, you know, you might not make that same connection. So that's something that I'd say, like, on the Gov side, traditional uh, methods of teaching kind of miss out on. And I guess that leads to another argument as well about, you know, what is the long-term benefit on critical thinking? Um, just how, you know, it helps us develop familiarity with like the ebb and flow of different power structures. Again, a lot of the patterns we see in history are just repeating, right? It's just a, a cycle. So the interests of the 1% and the ruling class back then are very similar still. The interests of oppressed groups and the working class are very similar still. And it's worth examining it using that lens so that we can, again, identify these social conditions that breed certain historical events. Um, and yeah, and I guess like if you're to ask, like, why is that important? It's just the whole like, you know, it makes us better advocates, makes us better lifelong learners and overall like better global citizens. Cheesy, cheesy stuff. <laughs> I don't yeah, think, I think that's generally the go. Oh, sorry. I don't, sorry, sorry. I don't think the arguments are cheesy at all because I think it does deal with a lot of the problems we are facing currently with how history is taught, how history repeats itself. So my question mm -hmm. now is, given that strong framing and like basically this the strong argumentation coming from government, 
if you were in opposition, how would you enter this debate? Like, my first question, I guess, would be, mm-hmm. um, would you defend the current model of teaching individual figures? Would you alter this? Like, what's the strategy mm-hmm. here if you were on op? Okay, so um, on op, I guess, like, the first thing you'd have to do is kind of reframe because like I said I guess in reality it is kind of really a mix like in the real world it is a bit of a mix but um, on op I would frame it as like there are a lot of places and you know contexts where we've actually adjusted this way of teaching like it's evolved right we're not teaching history the same way we taught it 50 years ago obviously and uh, the government case kind of relies on that a little bit right that um, it's a bit outdated or that it focuses just on men or only on, let's say, you know, um, privileged parties, for example. But on op, I would kind of reframe and say that, look, um, we've actually become a lot more dynamic in the way we discussed history. Um, for example, the inclusion of Black history is something that is very important. There is greater focus on female figures, giving more credit to female contributions and there's a more dynamic discussion, I would say, of different power struggles. So, for example, if we teach about like Magellan, we also teach about Lapu-Lapu, or we also teach about indigenous struggles, for example, if we're going to be talking about colonizers. So first, I would just do that reframe just to set the stage that this isn't like that archaic. <laughs> like this is just a more practical way to teach. And I guess that to the first argument, it's just that this is a practical method of teaching. Um, because in as much as we want to discuss, you know, all the complexities in all the issues of the world, realistically, teaching methods still have to be replicable. They have to work on a broad variety of students, especially younger students, right? Um, so, you know, it's helpful when you give children and young people a roadmap, you give them people to aspire to, or in the same vein, you provide them with cautionary tales. Um, it makes it easier to visualize history. It's also generally easier to teach. Um, I'm sure a lot of teachers would have an easier time handling that kind of curriculum compared to like a very complex discussion and interpretation on their part. Um, So yeah, so I think the systemic analysis might be too esoteric, especially for younger students and OP really needs to lean on that. And they need to kind of emphasize that you need to consider quality still when you're teaching a certain curriculum. Um, We might have the, you know, best ideals or values in the world, but if in practice it doesn't quite work, um, of course, it's not going to get the outcome that you want. And it, again, that leads me to the next argument, which, which would be about you know learning outcomes and the long-term impact. So this is where you could be dynamic and gov. Um, I think you can talk about how if you grow up learning that you know systemic forces are always at play, there's always external factors to be considered. What it ends up doing in the mind of a young person is that you kind of end up minimizing the role that individual figures play in terms of history and in terms of events, right? And I think it's not too far off to say that as a result, you're also probably less likely to hold problematic figures to account when you encounter them because you're used to deflecting to external factors or systemic factors like this really ties back to what is the goal of education, right? It's not just about being 100% complete in terms of reporting history, but it is about what kind of people do we want to form? Um, So, you know, we want young people to recognize inefficient or power-hungry leaders and hold them as individuals accountable and not deflect it to, oh, this is just the result of a system uh, or a larger, you know, um, institution as a whole. 
So I guess, yeah, that ties it back to the more principled discussion as well about education needs to have a goal. Um, and you can't really connect that moral side of history if you don't discuss people at length and individuals and their own motivations at length. That's just realistically the best way to connect with young people and with students. And it'll probably get better outcomes across the board. I think that's generally how I would frame the op case. Actually, I wanted to ask for op, because uh, you mm-hmm. mentioned that it might be very difficult for younger students to understand. I just feel like whenever you hear that sort of argument in a debate, most of the time it's very assertive. You just go like, well, these kids are very yeah. young. They don't understand it. So how would you oh, yeah. flesh that out a little bit more so that it doesn't seem as assertive as it usually mm-hmm. um as it usually is in in a lot of these debates. Yeah, definitely. Like I've also seen that a lot in some debates that I've seen and I guess it's it's not to say right that like young people can't grasp complex ideas. It's more of these are the kinds of ideas where you need to have let's say if you're learning about economic factors, you kind of need to have a, at least a basic understanding of those things before you can understand how it impacts other aspects of society so let's say if you're like in grade seven and you're you haven't even had like you know your first proper economics class or you haven't really dived into those topics it's a little bit harder to appreciate and it might not resonate with these students in the same way so it's not so much that kids can't grapple with these things it's just that realistically at younger ages they they aren't yet supposed to deal with those things they're still learning the basics the foundational things so yeah so again, because you're not just talking about figures, talking about a confluence of factors that requires kind of understanding each factor on its own first. So that is more challenging at the primary level and the younger ages. Thank you for that. So I think we can now move on to the second motion, um, which is about streaming, right? And the motion reads, this house believes that schools should aggressively stream students according to their ability from a young age. Um, I really like this motion. I think it's one of those classic motions that get um, like a, a, a new spin every once in a while. And in this case, I think it's the term streaming. Streaming is basically a system by which students are grouped together based on a certain characteristic like skill level. So I guess the question here is what would an aggressive version of that would look like? This would be based on, let's say, your test scores or like your quarterly assessments or whatever. Um, And then that's how you kind of figure out, okay, this is the skill level of this person. So we'll put them in this certain class. So I guess aggressive version here in this motion is kind of also tied to the second part of the motion, which is like um, doing it from a young age or starting from a young age. So in status quo, the way it's usually done is it's usually implemented in secondary levels. Um, and it's not often done in primary level. So maybe for this debate, the discussion would be like, should we start doing this on the primary level or you know, even as early as like grade school, um, since that is where you are assessing students' aptitudes more regularly. So that's probably what aggressive would look like in this case. And yeah, those two parts of the motion kind of tie together that way. I feel like I have some sort of bias in this motion because when I was in elementary school, they did do some streaming. They did do some streaming. Like the, the quote unquote smart people were put into the HPL class. Which is, they call it the high potential learners. Um, oh, God. Okay, I was a part of that. And then even within that star section, 
they would separate like the cream of the cream of the crop though and they they have like special sections so like it's segregation within segregation so yeah. i i'm i do feel like i'm a little bit biased for this <laughs> in the sense that it wasn't a good experience for me but for government side how would you reasonably frame this debate um so that both teams can engage in it and how would that be strategic to launch further arguments later on mm-hmm. so i guess like the way i would frame it like i guess like what i mentioned earlier is that yeah aggressive streaming probably like the realistic um frame would just be like oh let's extend it to primary school um and then i think like because it just makes sense because that is the only time that we really start to assess kids and their aptitudes. Like we don't do it in like kindergarten, right? So I think that's a reasonable frame. I think it would be kind of strange <laughs> if God were to say, okay, we're going to start it in preschool. Like that might be very, very limiting to the debate, might be um, a little too, you know, strange. <laughs> so I would say probably primary school is really the most reasonable framing for this. Um, and yeah, I guess the gov team does have to kind of frame it as you know this is based obviously on assessments that have already been done like obviously this isn't pulled out of thin air <laughs> like you have basis to some degree for these streams and then if you want to frame the part about it being aggressive it could be that you know maybe every year they reassess what is um the most fit Uh, level for certain students so if they are starting to underachieve or not meeting certain expectations maybe they'll be shifted to another class etc so maybe they can even make that um, even more aggressive it could be quarterly if they want but I guess the point is really just that you will really follow um, the streaming to a T so given that that's how it would take place like a reasonable age with a system that might be aggressive by like a yearly assessment or a quarterly assessment What would you now run as a government team in terms of the benefits of this system as well as the harms of any other system? Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess on Gov, like even before you start arguing, it might it would probably be good on Gov to emphasize why um, particularly the terms aggressively and from a young age are both actually beneficial to your side. So this is already sort of a preemption to op, I guess. So if I were Gov, I'd say, you know, If you start from a young age, children are kind of more likely to be, you know, accustomed to it and not really take it personally. It'll just be more of like, oh, it's just always been this way. Um, if I was Gov, I would like kind of preempt already ops harms. And I would say that, look, a lot of these harms happen. So let's say like lower self-esteem or, you know, feeling um, dejected because you're not in a higher like grade level. I would say that those usually happen when students are used to being in a diverse class and then suddenly in secondary school or in high school, they're suddenly categorized by abilities, right? That's usually where the disconnect happens, I would say, on Gov. So this is where Gov can say that that's why it's good that we start from a young age um, because you get them accustomed to the system and they don't really have like a point of reference for like another way of doing things. It's just like, this is how it's always been done. And so they don't also have reason, I guess, to like you know, bully each other or look down on certain classes because it's kind of just always been that way. Um, yeah, and I guess that's why GovSide can claim that, you know, by the time you reach high school, you can continue that kind of system more 
successfully. Now, in terms of arguments uh, for government side, I would say that you need to prove, um, yeah, not again, not only why it's generally beneficial, but why it's important from a young age, which we kind of did already. But I'd probably also run an argument discussing why it's beneficial on a practical level. So within the classroom dynamics, I would say, um, you know, the way that teachers decide how to allocate time and attention to each student, it'll be a little easier if they know that they're all at the same level. Um, so they're all probably having like maybe similar learning difficulties or maybe, um, you know, the teacher can help them as a class instead of having to go to particular students that are struggling. Um, so it helps make that system more efficient. Another thing is that this would just generally probably have a better impact on classes overall, because then curricula and lesson plans can be tailored to certain difficulty levels. And yeah, and that kind of helps pinpoint uh, what students are having difficulty with and getting ahead of it, rather than um, having mixed classes where some students will just fall behind and suddenly, you know, won't be able to catch up or won't be able to be catered to by the teacher um, because they are like an outlier. So I would say generally that is the gov case. Um, yeah. On the other hand, how would you argue for the opposition bench now? Because mm -hmm. it seems like you can make the same argument that, you know, they don't really have any other like reference. They, they can't really compare it to anything else either on opposition. So you might also be able to mitigate a lot of the harms like bullying and stuff on opposition as well. So what unique arguments could you run for opposition here? Um, I guess for opposition, like I would say that, you know, streaming really tends to, uh, I, I set up students to fail, right? On opposition, my framing would really be that um, streaming creates certain expectations, whether it's from, you know, classes that are considered, um, you know, the lower classes and the classes that are considered the overachieving, you know, gifted, talented classes, right? Um, either one, I think, would be harmful for students. Um, so if I'm a strategic opposition, right, I would say it doesn't matter when you start the system, really, like, it, it creates a point of comparison regardless. And it's kind of just human nature <laughs> to compare ourselves to other people, even if you're young kids, all the more, actually, if you are young children, right? So um, that would just be my general framing. But again, streaming, I would say, tends to set up both ends of the spectrum to fail. So maybe for high achievers, the fact that, you know, if from a young age, imagine you're being categorized as gifted, as talented, you know, as the like honors class of the school, the pride and joy of the school. And then, you know, having to maintain that throughout like your educational career is kind of terrifying <laughs> and probably would cause like a lot of anxiety and stress for these kids, um, especially if you start from a very young age, right? If you're already at the top, what if you get sent to a lower class level or what if um, you don't do as well in your assessments as you used to? And this is just, you know, so much worse, I would say, than what we do in the typical classroom setup, right? Because there is a clear disparity and there is a clear categorization going on. Um, while there is still, of course, comparison in regular schools and the regular system, it's not one that's like entrenched by the itself right like it's probably just students comparing their scores to each other or some will get praised some will need a little extra help it's not entrenched in the system but 
streaming is literally like the whole school system is based around okay these are the talented kids and here's everyone else <laughs> right so again if you're a lower level student um starting from a young age it's gonna already um define your expectations of yourself that you think oh okay this is uh, this is the ceiling for my achievement like i probably can't get past this or if you look at the honors class you might tell yourself um i can't do what they do like they're far out of my league and i can't get there and again there's always the problem of like bullying or you know having other students make fun of you because you're not um at the level you want to be at which is of course being a high achiever so yeah i would say that's the more dynamic way to run the opposition case is to talk about not just like the lower achievers or lower classes of students but even how for high achievers it's kind of like a double-edged sword um, and it can hurt your self-esteem in the long run as well and then link it back to the whole what's the purpose of education what's the point of all of this <laughs> and explain why that's important yeah i can totally relate to that not just because i was in <laughs> the i was in the, the top section and then all of a sudden i became like i was placed in the right. lowest section so I, I did notice that like the teachers were, were like treating us very differently that like they were always mm-hmm. mad at us and then we'd have to yeah we're all dumb here <laughs> we can't be a nerd like you Kyle uh, meanwhile um, people who remained in the star section like I would see them in high school and later in college and they're like oh my god I can't I can't deal with this right now because they have associated themselves as like they are just naturally mm-hmm. smart um so right. when they they have to deal with the fact that they can't be perfect all the time and they they really struggle there so i i yeah. feel like that's why i was saying i was kind of biased against <laughs> I, yeah I it's so much worse when you're younger yeah exactly yeah um so i don't know anyway it's still about me the third motion is still all about me joke lang. um because <laughs> the third motion is about revoking tax breaks for all religious educational institutions. And I also came from a religious educational institution. <laughs> Same. <laughs> so, like, we did know that there was this concept called a tax break where if it was mm-hmm. an, a religious educational institution, the school, in my case, it was San Beda. Ooh, I name-dropped them. Should I, bl- <laughs> should I, mean, I blur it I out? think people know where you're Please. from, man. Yeah, you know what? <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> um, yeah, so we did have this concept of like they do not have to pay like real property taxes. I don't even think they need to pay income taxes. Mm-hmm. So they do enjoy those tax breaks. But my question now is why were those tax breaks even given to these religious educational institutions in the first place? Like what was the point of this policy from the perspective mm-hmm. of the government or from the state? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I guess like it does tie to the kind of usual or typical version of this motion, which is like just religious institutions generally, which is like, you know, it's because the state recognizes, you know, they provide some kind of public good. So usually with like religious institutions in general, it's like charitable services or like, you know, um, aid in times of crisis or, you know, um, all of these other things, scholarships, what have you. Um, so I guess the key here is to kind of nuance it to um, educational institutions. Um, and I guess the focus then would probably be like scholarships. Um, a lot of educational institutions really have like very strong 
um, scholarship drives or very aggressive scholarship drives. And that's usually kind of the um, one of the bigger benefits of like giving them tax breaks is because they recognize that particularly in the sphere of education, they're giving opportunities that maybe the state can't really provide to the same extent, whether it's lack of funding or whether it's, you know, um, it's it's difficult to implement on like the government level. Um, yeah, it's usually because these institutions kind of fill in that gap to some extent, or maybe they're more efficient at it or whatever. <laughs> so I guess the next question would be, what would it mean to revoke these tax breaks? Like, what does it involve? Um, what message would it send, basically? Um, and I guess what I'm curious about is, what would the stance on government be for other religious organizations and institutions, right? Because if the nuance of this motion is about educational institutions, would government have to defend or is it reasonable for government to revoke tax breaks in general? Or would you, mm-hmm. as government, nuance this only to religious educational institutions? Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess to answer the first question, like revoking tax breaks would essentially be like, um, so these institutions, you would no longer exempt them from paying certain taxes. So they would have to pay the full extent of their taxes, no like discounted property tax or, you know, all these other things. Um, so basically it would kind of be a blow, I guess, financially to these institutions, right? Like it would, I would say definitely send a message that like, either you don't approve of what they're doing or at the very least that, you know, you don't want to be actively involved um, with the way those kinds of institutions are run or you don't want to be associated with it as the state or as the government. Um, So, uh, yeah, Um, on Gov, I would like lean into that, right? And I would just say like, that's fine. (laughs) Like, it's okay if it comes off as aggressive, that's fine. Um, But to answer your second question, um, I think it's easier like in terms of stance, whether we differentiate between religious organizations uh, and educational religious organizations or institutions, I think it's just easier principally to go hard line. Like personally, I wouldn't make a distinct, I, I wouldn't make a distinction anymore between the two um, because I think it's better for God to just argue in favor of like generally states should be more secular. Like this is why, for example, um, you know, we don't actively, I guess, like fund like religious um, initiatives or you know these kinds of things like as much as possible the state does try to distance itself it's just that in this arena of like education and charity sometimes that line is overstepped um, but I would say generally the state should be more secular um, and you have to explain on gov why that's better for the greater public and it helps you make better use of taxpayers' money. I think if you were to distinguish the two, it, it, I don't think it's very strategic on Gov. Like, I mean, you could, but <laughs> it's kind of like, why? <laughs> like, um, yeah, I think it's just more principally consistent to be against, um, you know, giving tax breaks to either of those, since the principle would apply to either one anyway. Yeah, so given that sort of hardline stance, what would you then argue on government? Like, actually, mm-hmm. the first one is, why does the state have it within its interest to be as secular as possible? Because like, it kind of seems like it's, it mm-hmm. sounds very good, right? But there might be some times when um, debates have to go like, wait, why do we have to be secular in the first mm-hmm. place? Especially if yep. like some different countries, they have different versions of secularism. Like as far as I know, like secularism in the United States is like, let's protect 
um, let's protect the government or the state from religion. Meanwhile, here in the Philippines, the way that we view secularism is like, mm-hmm. let's protect religion from the state. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I guess on government, right? Like, and to tie back to that, the reason, I guess, why we should lean more towards secularism is, is particularly because we're talking about allocating taxpayers' money. So when we're talking about pu- any kind of public funding, it as much as possible needs to serve the public good. So it cannot kind of um, privilege one group over another. Um, and, I, I, you know, I guess that's true of like, pretty much any kind of program that the government funds is that we sh- it shouldn't discriminate um, based on race or religion or nationalism, like whatever, like it shouldn't discriminate or make those distinctions. It should be for the public good because the public is who funds these projects and these kinds of initiatives. So at the end of the day, it has to be as accessible, as inclusive as possible. Um, and that's kind of like pretty much the first argument, right, on Gov is how you know, even the most like benign accepting religions are still inherently exclusionary. Like there's just no way around it. You're either a believer or a non-believer. There isn't so much of a middle ground, right? So even if like in terms of values and in terms of actions they're doing, they might not actively be harmful, but just the fact that they can't necessarily um, include everyone is already a way that it's being exclusionary and a reason why it shouldn't be I guess, publicly funded or given tax breaks. Um, I guess another argument would be how, you know, since we talked about the kind of more benign (laughs) side of the spectrum, there are, of course, also the more um, harmful actors, I guess. Like, there is a discussion to be had about how there are religious groups that, you know, might teach certain things that don't align with what the state would want. So as a result, we we probably shouldn't grant them tax breaks because it, it empowers or it, um, you know, funds something that we actually don't want to encourage. So, for example, I guess, like, places where, you know, the church will just teach you abstinence instead of providing, like, meaningful sex education or responsible practices. Like, sometimes in certain areas, right, that's particularly irresponsible if it's a place with a booming population or, you know, places with high rates of sexually transmitted diseases. Like, it, it kind of directly goes against what the state would probably do, which is, you know, to some extent provide this kind of education or these kinds of services without discrimination, right? So I guess that can be the second argument really about how the other side of the spectrum is that they're actively doing harm or um, actively doing things that are not aligned with what the state would want um, in terms of outcomes. And so that's why, yeah, that's why we probably shouldn't fund those kinds of things. Um, Yeah, and it, it all really ties back to, you know, what is, what is the taxpayer's money for? What should it achieve? Like similar to the earlier education motions, right? It's really like, what what is the goal of all of this? And if at the end of the day, it's going to be exclusionary, either maliciously or even in a benign manner, it's probably not something that the state should be actively funding and supporting. So I guess what was, uh, what stood out to me was the idea that, you know, these are taxpayers' money. We have to be careful for, where it's being used, how it's being used, what values we are propagating as a state to the people that will either consume this education or are just paying their taxes, right? So I guess the question now is, with that strong of a frame coming from government, how would you as opposition 
insert yourself in the debate, how would you justify these tax breaks and what benefits would you see coming from these things? Mm -hmm. So I guess the way I would enter the debate on opposition is to, again, do a little bit of a reframe. (laughs) Um, And I would say that, you know, the vast majority of organizations, like since government did talk about, you know, both sides of the spectrum, on opposition, it actually opens up an opportunity where you can weigh which is like the bigger side of the spectrum. Like, are there more like, you know, benign or even like actively beneficial uh, religious educational institutions? Or are there more that are like a little more actively harmful or that don't go against what the state wants? So I would characterize that the vast majority probably aren't really as like archaic and radical as government side makes them out to be. And then, you know, you'd have to provide the trends why this is the case. Um, and then I would just characterize the public good generally that is provided by um, these institutions that can't really be provided to the same degree by any other institution. So here, I think it would be good to be very specific. So you can talk about like charity drives and foundations. You can talk about like, again, the educational scholarships for marginalized communities. The fact that a lot of um, religious educational institutions actively try to open up schools in places that are underserved, like that is something that differentiates them from just any private school, right? Or any um, similar institution. Um, because it is part of their dogma. It is part of their teaching that, okay, we have to cater to the poor. We have to cater to those who don't have the same um, opportunities, right? So it's here in this argument where you can kind of really explore why it's so sustainable and actually so efficient. Like this is here where you praise like how these institutions do things. So for instance, like even, I guess, sustaining charitable, like charity drives or charitable initiatives, like it is actually extremely consistent. Like if you look at, you know, even just the tithes that churches collect or um, even just the donations that schools tend to collect for like their charitable initiatives, like the people who go to these schools and the, the families of these individuals, right? They subscribe to that belief. They subscribe to what they're preaching. So they tend to be very consistent in donating and supporting their communities. Um, they provide so many levels of like social security that usually the state cannot provide. So even on a non-tangible level, um, these institutions are providing kind of like, you know, the moral support or the social support that a lot of local governments aren't always able to provide. And that's something that, you know, at some point you can't even put a price on it. Like it's so important for communities to have that. And these institutions are very consistent and very good at doing that. So, yeah, so you just kind of have to frame that actually the vast majority are able to really sustain these kinds of initiatives in ways that other groups are not incentivized to or don't really have a reason to. Um, And yeah, and I guess that's the first kind of discussion. The second one, I guess, would be like, I would make it about like why even taking government's worst, just drawing the comparative, like, yeah explaining is it better in a world where at least they have you know it might not be full like um you know commitment to public interest but at least it's comparatively better that we have tax breaks as a way to like kind of temper (laughs) the things that they teach or the kind of educational standards that they follow right like there will be more incentive for them to follow the broader educational standards set by the state if they know that a big chunk of their tax breaks relies on or really all their tax breaks and the benefit of that relies on you know following that 
Um, so yeah, so I would just paint that it is comparatively better versus a world where, you know, they can say that, oh, we are completely reliant on ourselves and we don't need to answer to you because you don't help us out anyway, right? So that's kind of engaging the worst case scenario or the worst characterization on gov side, which is that, you know, these are institutions that are kind of going rogue a little bit or, you know, doing their own thing without regard really for like what the state wants or the kind of education that the state wants to uphold. So at least the tax break provides some incentive to follow those broader educational standards. And that's a better world than the alternative. <laughs> so I guess that's it for the motions. Typically, we ask um, our motion contributors, like, what advice did you give for people who are struggling with this kind of theme? But I guess since the topic is about education in general, <laughs> and since you are also an educator, right, we wanted to ask, like, what advice in general would you give to novices? Like, I can imagine that a lot of them might be feeling overwhelmed. A lot of them might just be like, oh, no, I'm, I'm very shy like that. <laughs> um, because like, I, I am like handling kids right now. Where it's like, mm-hmm. I know that I have to rebut. I know I have to argue something. But every time that they think of something, they shoot it down like immediately. They go like, yeah, I don't think that's good enough. So they end up not being able to prep anything. So for those people who are dealing with that kind of mental struggle in debate, especially during prep, what advice would you give to them to overcome that? Mm-hmm. I guess like the advice I would give is one that like one of my coaches told me a long time ago, which was like, you can't like you can't cover all your bases at the same time, meaning you have to allow yourself to develop skills one by one. Like that's really the way that, you know, you learn anything, right? Is like you take it a step at a time. And I know for young debaters, it's it's so hard when you see people like your age and they're like winning championships left and right. And you're like, oh, my God, like, what am I what am I supposed to do? How do I get there? You know, it's it's the reason why the people who are like, you know, champion debaters are like uh, these accomplished individuals. The reason why they got there is because they work on one thing at a time, like try to work on things strategically. So whether it's, you know, first you want to work on being more analytically rigorous with your arguments maybe during training you set aside time specifically for that and with that goal in mind and you know at least the next time you train you'll be motivated because it's like oh I was able to make some progress in the area I identified and then that's when you can move on to okay now I want to work on my rebuttals or now I want to work on giving more strategic POIs like debate is really it's hard because it's not just public speaking right there's so many different moving parts in a debate and in even just one speech so i would say like don't beat yourself up if you don't master all the skills needed for debate all at once it's really such a multi-layered sport (laughs) and it takes a lot of practice so if you can at least have a clear goal in mind for particular skills and you build it gradually there i promise there will come a day where like it'll all click and you'll be like yeah i did that (laughs) so that's my advice for young debaters (laughs) no i think that's really great advice because people have a tendency of thinking debate is just this one monolith of a sport and really it's Mm -hmm. just made out of these different foundations that you have to master then eventually Mm -hmm. um you master enough of them that the sum of all the parts does Mm -hmm. really well and you get a high score Mm -hmm. right so um thank you so much for that and thank you so much for allowing us to interview you, to get motions from you. Um, 
for for the context of everyone here, like this is our second uh, part two of recording because we got disconnected. So thank you as well for your patience as we tried to fix our internet. Um, we overcame it together. We bonded true. forever now. <laughs> it was a collective struggle. Yeah, yes. bonded over that. So thank you so much, Ricky. Um, we hope you have a great day. Yay. And to all our listeners, thank you for spending your day with us or evening with us or mid round with us. I mean, <laughs> they're listening to this mid round. Like, yeah. How did you? How did you get this? What are you doing? Anyway, yeah. thank you. Thanks so much, bye. guys. I had so much fun.